Hello, welcome to Second World Problems, the first best world building podcast. I am Morgan, or this week I am Trevor Belmont, as uh, voiced by Richard Armitage, hence why I chose them. And as always, I'm joined by Finn, or I'm not sure what am I calling you today? I was going to be Cypher Belnades until you said that you were Trevor. And now I'm not now I'm not comfortable with that because they end up in a romantic relationship. So I will be Alucard. The the old faithful. Yeah. <laughs> um what are we doing if people couldn't guess from that? We are doing subtle reference. Castlevania, the Netflix animated show, not the games, just to be clear. Um so Castlevania, if you don't know, is a horror action adventure animated series set in a dark fantasy medieval world, loosely based on the video gear game series of the same name. And it was released on Netflix worldwide. Its story is originally based on the events from Castlevania III, Dracula's Curse, and unites some of the aspects with elements from other games such as Symphony of the Night and Curse of Darkness. It features Trevor Belmont as the main protagonist on a quest to stop the evil vampire Vlad Dracula, Tepesh, who seeks to destroy humanity following the execution of his wife, Lisa. It is complete at um, is it a complete series at four seasons and on June 11, 2021, a spin-off series was confirmed by Netflix flo- focusing on Richter Belmont and Maria Renard. So that's what we're doing today. Fun, fun, fun. It's quite recent series, so that's nice. Um, is it still going? Are they still making it? It's finished. Oh, it's all done. That's why I said it's a complete series yeah. at they four seasons. Three, four seasons. Damn, I'm behind. <laughs> Season four is really good. Season three is a bit... We'll get there. Um... So the world is medieval fantasy Eastern Europe. So it's mainly set center set around sort of Austria and Romania, that sort of area. Um, it is an R-rated animated series. So love both the swearing and the gore that they're allowed to have because swearing it's an adult show. Um, I think there should be more animation that's directly for adults with adult appropriate content because Castlevania has proved on Netflix, that if it's done well, and it's not just like pure gross indulgence of the fact that it has an R rating, people will watch it. Like it doesn't, like people love adult animation. Mm. It's just that there's not a lot of it. Yeah, I think it's slowly becoming more common. Common People are like, oh, I want to make it. And then people are watching it and then it's, people are like, oh, maybe we will fund this. I yeah. Guess. Um, I also really like that Castlevania has got bits and pieces of like queer representation I think it could have a bit more since it's a show for adults and it's, if it's got swearing, sex and death, the purity debate that you get um, that often gets played out in regards to having queer rep in animation really shouldn't apply because it's not a show for children anyway. Not that you shouldn't have queer rep in shows for children. It's just that that's usually what people say. So, oh, for the kids, mm. so like, don't Think of taint the it. children. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, if it's an animated adult show, it should have representation because there's really no excuse not to have mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But because of like, I suppose like the change, we're sort of in changing times where things are happening, but we haven't quite got to the point where it's normalized yet. Um, I really appreciate that it has it at all. It's it's good that it's there. I do wish there was more of it. Um, I know some people um, that I've talked to have feelings about the third season of the show in comparison to the first two and then the last. Um, I don't think the third season is as good. And I think the shorter seasons work better when it comes to pacing and having interesting story threads to follow. But I still think as an overall show, it still works. 
Um, but I know some people do not like. It's so weird to drop season. the ball in like a third season and then just also just pick up in a fourth and just like it never happened. It's well, so weird. they didn't, I mean, they don't erase the third season in the fourth. It's just that they, in the third season, they changed the format and they, they got given more episodes. So there was more to do, but I don't think they knew what to do with all those episodes. And yeah. then season four goes back to small, like a shorter season um, and it works much better. Sometimes, yeah, you work better with that constrained. You don't have to fill. That's the thing. Like shows that have filler episodes are often like, oh, rough, a bit rough. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm also not unhappy that there's a spinoff. Um, I really liked the way the show ended. I do wish there'd been more. Like I, I really enjoyed being in the world of Castlevania and I really enjoyed the characters. I loved I loved the um, dynamic between the three, between Trevor and Alucard and Cypher, mm-hmm. especially because I don't think the third season is as good. Having a not great third season means that like it feels like there's less of the show that I really like. But I think also, and I don't know that if this is necessarily true for this show, but I think being able to choose how and where you end something also makes for a more satisfying and complete story. And I don't know if they necessarily, if they were told that this would be their last season and therefore they planned for it or if they planned to finish it this season anyway. But I think they wrapped it up in a really good way, in a way that wasn't disappointing. Yeah, ending shows is hard and we've often seen it fail and then every now and then we have seen it succeed very well. It's, I think it's getting better, like, especially like lately, like you have stuff like The Good Place and more recently like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a couple of things, like they wrap it up in a nice way. Yeah. And uh, we can do that with animation too. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, uh, yeah, so you, get how you have so many examples of when they don't stick the landing that when they do, you're like, you really appreciate it. Um, in terms of where this is, where the world is set, it's sort of generally Eastern Europe. They pop around to a couple of different places, but all usually within Eastern Europe. Um, but it has obvious attention paid to vampire sites in history and fiction. Um, so Transylvania is a historical region that is located in central Romania, um, bounded in the east and the south by its natural borders, the Carpathian, the Carpathian mountain range. Transylvania proper extended extends westward to the Apuseni Mountains. It is the setting um, that Bram Stoker places Dracula in in the beginning of his novel um, before the Count travels to London. Castlevania put, uh, pulls from a lot of vampire resources because obviously they have the whole history of vampires to um, pull inspiration from. So There's a lot they, of lore out they there. They use a lot of it. Um, so they use both Dracula the novel and the story that is said to inspire it, the story of Vlad the Impaler, um, although some there's critics disagree on the level or if it's true that he even yeah, really are, looked at that. There are some interesting stuff. If you want to hear more about that, go check out the season finale of Infamous Individuals. <laughs> um, so the story of Vlad the Impaler, so they use that, um, both of those, to sort of locate their own story. One of the... Main settings, I guess, is Wallachia, which is a principality which Vlad III ruled in his time, located on the lower Danube River. Its name is derived from that of the Vlachs, who cons- who constituted the bulk of its population. Wallachia bounded on was bounded on the north and north northeast by the Transylvanian Alps, on the west, south, and east by the Danube River, river, and on the northeast by the Seret River. So it's very surrounded by rivers. Um, traditionally, it is considered to be founded in 1290 by Radu the Black, a vivode or military governor, um, in southern Transylvania and then part of Hungary, who crossed the Transylvanian Alps and settled at Campelong. We're going to have some fun with all the <laughs> pronunciation, Eastern European pronunciations. We always do. Um, I should be slightly better, 
this time for anything that features in the show because I will just remember how they pronounce how it they in the show. It, yep. And as long <laughs> as it's correct in the show, I will then be correct. But anything else outside of that is going to be fun. Um, the new principality was initially dominated by Hungary and then by the Ottoman Empire, although Wallachia was allowed to retain its own dynasty, territory and religion and numerous princes continued Wallachia's resistance to the Turks until Wallachia joined its northeastern neighbour, Moldavia, which then becomes Moldova, obviously, yeah. and to form the single state of Romania, which achieved its independence from the Turks in 1878. Um, Grezit is one of the main cities in Wallachia in the Castlevania animation. It is fictional and developed for the show. So all the stuff that happens there, not a real place. Um, obviously, Castlevania. We've talked. We've already mentioned Dracula. We like we've mentioned that he's the main antagonist in the show, um, for some of it anyway. So obviously, we're dealing with vampires here. So we're going to have quite a heavy vampire episode. <laughs> um, we're going to learn a lot about vampires, and I hope you enjoy. Um, so, lots of vampire law, including Castlevania, operates on the rules that Bram Stoker sets out for what vampires can and cannot do. Um, so. They were set out in his gothic novel, Dracula, which you might be familiar with. And it was they were set out in 1901, which is when he published the novel. So they've persisted for a very long time. like Not like as long as vampires in folklore have existed and where um, lots of these rules originated in different spots. And then he's collated them and then changed them to fit his purposes. Yeah. But still a really... Quite, like quite a long time for vampire law to have a codified set of rules that people keep going back to and trying to subvert in their own ways. And that's how you get sparkly vampires. Of course. they Because you be want to be different. <laughs> um, so a vampire doesn't need blood to live. He is undying simply by the virtue of being a vampire. He does need blood to gain strength. And the more he consumes, the younger he appears. A vampire doesn't eat regular food and they cast no shadow and have no reflection in a mirror. A vampire has the strength of many at his hand, meaning he often has servants or can call upon animals to do his bidding. Uh, He can become a wolf, a bat, or come on moonlight rays as elemental dust, or he can become mist, but the mist is limited and it can only be around himself. And he can only change himself at noon or at exact sunrise or sunset, and he can become small and slip through a hairbreadth of space at a tomb door. Um, And you know, he has to spend a certain amount of time in his coffin home or his grave earth dirt place. He's basically just saying that, like, he either, he will either have a coffin filled with grave dirt from his ancestral, ancestral home mm-hmm. or he'll just have, like, something filled with the dirt from his ancestral that he can sleep in. And he's bound to that um, until certain times yeah. that he can affect his powers can, when once he finds his way, come out from anything or into anything, no matter how close it be bound or even fused by fire, which is just another way of saying that he can become small and like mutate his body to become whatever he needs it to be so he can get places. Um, A vampire can see in the dark. They cannot enter unless invited. They become powerless in daylight, but they don't necessarily die or burst into flames. A vampire can only pass running water at the slack or the flood of the tide, so there's only certain times of day that they can cross water. A vampire in the presence of garlic or a crucifix, he takes his place far off and silent with respect, which, like, they don't hurt him. It's just that he can't approach. It, it, it's a repellent 
but it's not like it's a poison. Like, oh, wild. If I was over there, but, <laughs> yeah. I, but I can't. <laughs> if you took that garlic off your window, I would be in there, but you didn't, <laughs> so I have to stay here. I um, mean, if you took the garlic off the window and invited them in. Yes, <laughs> I suppose. I don't know how it applies to windows. If it's, I so mean, I guess it's any... invited to the front door. They can just go through the window. I don't know. I'm trying to remember, like, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. To remember, like, how he actually gets into Lucy Westerner's home. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know if it's... Maybe it's the whole abode yeah, you have to be invited into. There's technicalities as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these are just very straightforward rules and then, like, they've just been used and reused and changed. And These are just, yeah. Um, we might get into it further down um, when we get into the specifics of these rules. A vampire is confined to his coffin if the branch of a wild rose is placed on top of it. A vampire can be killed by a wooden stake, de- decapitation, or shot from a sacred bullet. Um, and those are like, those are his rules. Yeah. And uh, he just sort of takes them from like folklore, sort of, and like makes some, probably some he makes his own and then he just lays them out in Dracula and they've just continued their existence it really then. is just like the foundation like you don't deviate too much people like people deviate but they work within the rules it's yeah. like how do i take these and play with them instead of just throwing them out yeah they usually like they might not use them all but they usually have like a couple that they stick to and they might change others but some will like they'll usually have a couple that remain exactly the same it's probably just at the point now where it's like been going on so long that you can't really change too much otherwise people just wouldn't accept them as vampires i suppose so i mean I mean, you could probably change it, but you might be met with scorn, much scorn. Oh, <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, you could, I suppose, just not do your research and just be like vampires. But I suppose the other thing is that um, they're so ingrained in, like, our cultural understanding of what vampires are in certain places in the world. Uh, by that, I mean, like, the West. We have our Western view of vampires. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's – you don't need to have read Dracula to know those rules because there's just so much cultural – history surrounded vampires that you you just sort of get it by osmosis yeah by existing you know around things like halloween you learn what vampires are you know even if halloween's not like a huge um holiday here like it is in other places yeah. but like you still know yeah it's still like awareness of yeah. something yeah um so as you said dracula is a gothic novel so what is gothic um, so gothic literature has influenced and inspired several subgenres of literature, including the supernatural tale, the ghost story, horror fiction, and vampire literature, importantly. The gothic, gothic novel is thought to have merged in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, inspired by the architectural style of the same name. It was in this time that a substantial body of works evolved that focused upon otherworldly, the otherworldly as a source of horror and terror. Although Gothic novelists often include um, supernatural incidents in their works, they also pursued other concerns, particularly those related to anxieties, desired, and social changes reflected in the culture of the time. The growth of popular magazines also increased the proliferation of supernatural tales, and Penny Dreadfuls provided the working class with serialised tales of the macabre, such as Varney the Vampire, also known as The Feast of Blood, a romance of exciting interest. Varney the Vampire was serialised over 109 instalments during the mid-1840s before being published as a novel in 1847. Exactly who wrote it was for a very long time a mystery. 
Um, it was published anonymous, anonymously, credited simply to the author of Grace Rivers or The Merchant's Daughter. In the earlier half of the 20th century, the eccentric scholar Montague Summers argued that the series author was Thomas Teskett Prest, as Prest has, had written the most famous penny dreadful of all, The String of Pearls, which introduced the world to Sweeney Todd. He was perhaps a logical suspect for having written Varney, um, which was the second most famous penny dreadful. However, in 1963, James Malcolm Reimer was established as the primary author. He did not write Sweeney Todd, but I don't know what else he wrote if he wrote anything else. Usually the setting in a Gothic work con- consists of a castle or manor in an isolated location, away from any city or civilization. And you can do a checklist and think about like how many gothic <laughs> things you've watched or, or read um, as we go through this because you'd be like, oh yeah, no, it has that, it has that. This, this genre is dark, eerie, and mysterious, often containing elements of terror, horror, and the macabre and the bizarre. Common themes and motifs of the gothic include power, confinement, and isolation. The genre has led to the rise of pulp magazines in the early 20th century, the modern horror genre, and most famously, the southern gothic fiction that contains elements of the gothic taking place in the American South. According to Professor John Bowen, the most common gothic motifs are strange places. It is usual for characters in gothic fiction to find themselves in a strange place, somewhere other, different, and mysterious. Clashing time periods. Gothics often take place in a moment of transition between the medieval period and the Renaissance, for example, or bring together radically different times. There is a strong opposition, but also a mysterious affinity in the Gothic between the very modern and the ancient or archaic, as everything that characters and readers think that they've safely left behind comes back with a vengeance. Power and constraint. The Gothic world is fascinated by by violent differences in power, and its stories are full of constraint, entrapment, and forced actions. Scenes of extreme threat and isolation, either physical or psychological, are always happening or about to happen. Sexual difference is at the heart of the Gothic, and its plots are often driven by the exploration of questions of sexual desire, pleasure, power, and pain. It is a freedom that much realistic fiction does not to speak about the erotic, particularly the illegitimate or transgressive sexuality, and is full of same-sex desire, perversion, obsession, voyeurism, and sexual violence. It gets into terror versus horror. Why do people like the Gothic's descriptions of frightening and horrible events, and why is the Gothic different from horror stories? So it might come down to a distinction between terror and horror. Terror is concerned with the psychological experience of being full of fear and dread and thus recognising human limits. Horror, by contrast, focuses on the horrific object or event itself. So that's why people might like gothic but not like actual horror movies. Yeah, I reckon I'd probably be... Um, I would put myself more in the gothic than into the horror, like straight horror. I like a bit of psychological thriller. Yeah, I love the psychological thriller. A madman just running around killing people. Uh, <laughs> it's no, not no, really your thing. N- not looking at you, Halloween Kills that's coming out right now. <laughs> I was going to rewatch all the Halloween movies and it just didn't happen. Still got time. Well, well <laughs> no, I don't like watching. I like watching horror movies with my friends. Ah, uh, yeah, binge sesh. Yeah, I just don't like it. This, I don't find them as fun when I'm by myself. Like they're fine. I still enjoy them. It's just like they're better when you have other people there. Like one time we watched. Um, and this is going to show you that we're a little bit fucked up. Uh, we watched. All the Saw movies before the new, I think it was Saw 7. Saw 7, not Jigsaw? No, it was the newest one. Yeah. Or maybe the newest, I don't know. Must have been the newest one. So we watched all six, I think, proceedings. So we watched five in the, like, the night before and one in the morning and then we went and saw the new Saw. <laughs> Just one before breakfast. It was no a biggie. lot. <laughs> it was a lot of Saw. <laughs> Especially because I think like four and five, 
adjust the earlier movies cut together so that way it just goes back and you're basically watching two and three yeah. again. It was a lot. It goes off the rails. <laughs> so the next um, common motif in the Gothic is a world of doubt. Gothic is um, particularly focuses on doubt about the supernatural and the spiritual. It seeks to create in our minds the possibility that there may be, may be things beyond human power, reason and knowledge. But that possibility, possibility is constantly accompanied by uncertainty. Gothic fiction is one which utilises the concept of the sublime, in which we encounter the mighty, the terrible and the awesome. Gothic is intended to give us the experience of the sublime to shock us out of our limits of everyday lives with the possibility of things beyond reason and explanation in the shape of awesome and terrifying characters and inexplicable and profound events. And in contrast, again, horror usually tends to be something... um, tends to be a genre of the abject as opposed to the sublime. So the sublime and the abject are like on a oppositional pole. So you have the sublime, which is like the mighty, the terrible and the awesome. And then you get the abject, which is the horrific, the sort of gross, the yucky. And they, they appeal to two different parts of, I suppose, what we like about being afraid. Yeah. It's a spectrum. Yeah. Um, having gone through all the elements of the Gothic, you may be able to link some of them to Castlevania, but I would argue that Castlevania is far more fantasy than it is gothic. I mean, you could um, argue it to the cows come home because defining any genre is a little bit iffy, but defining fantasy as a, as a genre is, a, is even worse. Yeah. Um, and so many scholars have put forth opinions or concepts of how to talk about fantasy, which means that it's easier to pick a definition that works for you and that fits your purpose for what you're doing, like I'm doing right now, um, than it is to settle in an actual definition because genres don't really – you can't really define genres anyway. They're more like a collection of ideas and story tropes than they are like a codified thing. That's why they move. It wasn't set out originally. It was as stuff was made. It slowly came together. (laughs) Um, So that means something like the gothic genre, like – uh, fantasy, like like we've sort of just defined the gothic genre by its motifs, fantasy is best identified by a number of ideas, motifs, tropes. But unlike gothic fiction, has too many to count in any meaningful way. There's just more in fantasy than there is recognisably in the gothic. Like the gothic, you can have like the list we just went through and most of those will be in a gothic text. Whereas with fantasy, you get a number and they get recombined mm-hmm. and new things get introduced. There's just too many. So since Castlevania, I'm arguing that Castlevania is best described as fantasy. I'm saying it's because of its structure. So it's an adventure, which Mm. is what fantasy is. Fantasy uh, related to romance, which are adventure structures. Um, And they're often combined with a quest narrative at its heart. Like Trevor has when he goes to kill Dracula. Like that's a quest. The quest is kill Dracula, Mm. stop the end of the world. Um, and it also has elements of the marvelous, which is important for fantasy. That's what makes it a fantastic adventure. That's what makes it fantasy, um, which is that it has magic. And that tr- transcends the story beyond the ordinary, which is also what makes it fantasy. Mm-hmm. So that's my argument for why Castlevania is not actually gothic. I definitely see it as like it's a fantasy set in a gothic world. Yeah. That's like the vibe, I reckon. Or like a gothic gothic fantasy are two words you see together yes. quite commonly as well. Well, I mean, saying something's gothic and fantasy, I mean, it really just, they just um characterize each other. So like if you say something's a gothic fantasy, like gothic 
will often have like has to have something supernatural usually in it yeah. to make it gothic. It's just that whether that supernatural thing is fantasy is then what makes it gothic fantasy. Like they just they just link together in ways that that almost make them redundant to link them if together. If you wrote a book and it was like pure fantasy, it's just every time you described a building, it was gothic styling. Could you call that a gothic fantasy? Like <laughs> it's fantasy in every way, but all the buildings are very gothic. <laughs> No, and you go into probably great detail. not because it's not a motif. That's a world building <laughs> it's detail. True. It's more, to, yeah. I it's would say no. It's architectural <laughs> decisions in this world yeah. are very gothic. Yeah, um, but it's, that doesn't count as a motif, so I would say no. Yeah. Um, but there would probably be some scholar who would argue very strongly against me. <laughs> that's that's the way it is. And with I'm, this stuff. I invite them to. I'll do my best. I mean, gothic isn't really my area of expertise. Hit us up in the DMs. Is. We want to hear your. De- we want to hear your arguments. <laughs> What's your defense? <laughs> so our we've talked a little bit about our main characters, but we'll get a little bit more into our characters and villains now. So Trevor is a monster hunter, which I enjoy. Um, and the last descendant of the Belmont family who were exiled and excommunicated by the church, big surprise, and eventually killed. His family dedicated their lives to fight creatures of darkness commanded by Lord Dracula and protect mankind. And Trevor, though a bit of a mess, does his best to continue that. Um, and as Morgan said, voiced by Richard Armitage, amazing decision. Um, mm-hmm. There is Cypher, who is a speaker. Speakers, um, a highly educated nomadic group that memorize oral histories and events in Wallachia. There are many speaker trains that are spread out across the nation. Though never stated, the speakers are likely nomadic so that they may witness history everywhere and exchange knowledge with other speaker tribes. Speakers are all too happy to share their knowledge with citizens. While traveling, they will take precautions to protect tribal members. For this reason, all speakers, male and female, have similar haircuts and wear the same robes to protect the female members. In general, their clothes um, are similar to those of monks that we would see in our world. Additionally, the speakers respect the nature of magic and even have practic- practitioners as members. Along with keeping the history of Wallachia, speakers are committed to ideals. They feel they must always help those in need, no matter the danger it poses them. If those in need are suffering an ongoing crisis, speakers will temporarily settle in the region and stay until the need has passed. Their aid will often take the form of medical assistance, sharing resources, and just sort of generally being of use and sometimes taking charge because that's what Cypher does. So Cypher is a speaker and she's also a magic practitioner. She practices elemental magic, which is pretty cool. Love elemental magic. I was going to do a thing on that, but then I was decided it was too difficult to... Um, <laughs> I was like, I can't really bring all my stuff on magic from my PhD into this episode <laughs> of a podcast so we'll just leave it behind and also elemental magic is hard to qualify in the first place so i left it alone and then of course we have the third member of the triumvirate alucard or adrian so he is the son of dracula and human doctor wife lisa who um i just like that dracula has a human doctor wife who was clearly <laughs> so much better than he is yeah um also fun fact it's not i don't know it's, i don't think it's particular obvious alucard is dracula, dracula backwards. backwards yeah i i just thought of <laughs> thought everyone knew that <laughs> i don't know i feel like it's the thing it's like where you just assume people know that yeah. but then i'm like why that like i don't necessarily I think, it's think cause that it's really really popular in contemporary vampire fiction to have like you have like the games as well helsing i think yeah well that's the only Whereas reason Alucard, I'm, yeah, yeah that's the only reason i'm familiar with it is because like I was, I was into helsing for a little bit like <laughs> <It wasn't>. was, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i think that's why people know it because of popular fiction 
Hurlicard was born in the mid-1450s, nearly 20 years later in 1475, Lisa was falsely accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. Upon learning that Dracula had begun, begun summoning an army from hell, 19-year-old Alucard confronted him, he doesn't look 19, <laughs> confronted his father begging him not to kill innocent people for revenge. When Dracula refused to listen, Alucard fought his father but was defeated, leaving him with a large scar on his chest. Beneath the city of Grezit, Alucard placed himself inside a coffin to recover his strength. A legend about him then spreads, stating that a sleeping soldier awaited beneath Grezit and that he would be met by a hunter and a scholar. And guess what? That happens. Exactly what happens. It's funny. I just, I didn't realize that he was like 19. I know they show him as like a kid, but then he reads adult, adulthood and he just looks exactly the same the entire time. Like he just looks like a Greek statue come to life, but with long blonde hair. Like it just... It doesn't look like he actually has a proper age. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of vampire vibe there. Because he's half yeah, vampire? he's half vampire. Yeah. We'll, get in, we'll get into that in mythology. We'll talk about vampires. Then we have our bad guys. Dracula, obviously, is the first main antagonist. He is basically a version of the Dracula you usually think of, except he has a human wife. That's the one thing the they one changed. He has, he, and he's slightly, I suppose he's, they like to say that he's slightly less crazy. But, you know, that's arguable. You know, he, he, I don't know. He, it really is just like he was fine, and then that something happens. <laughs> he to was, like, he was fine. He was just doing his thing, and then they, and then they kind of screwed him over a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that he was fine. He was, he was. Um, and then we have our second main antagonist, which is Camilla, and she is the vampirist queen of Styria, as well as the leader of the Council of Sisters. I really liked the Council of Sisters. I thought that was a great thing to introduce, and I loved, I loved it. She is a scheming and manipulative noblewoman and former ally and general of Lord Dracula, who sought to usurp control over the vampires from him and raise them as the world's new dominant species. We're not really going to cover Camilla's vampire sisters in in a lot of detail. This is really all we're going to do, but I just want to point out that all their names have really interesting sort of folklore vampire roots. So you have, um, so her sisters are Lenore, Striga and Morana, um, and they're all named with associations to vampirism and death. So Lenore could come from a gothic poem of the same name about death collecting a woman in the guise of her dead lover and bringing her, her to their marriage bed to die. Um, it's a German, German poem. It's actually pretty cool. Um, or it could be Edgar Allan Poe's poem, also called Lenore, which also mourns a dead lover, um, but less less um, crazy gothic where death <laughs> death comes in the form of her not husband because he died during the war, picks her up on a horse, takes her to a graveyard and like sh- she dies next to the skeleton of her already dead lover in front of their tombstone. Cute. So crazy. <laughs> um, there's Striga who we've, um, we've talked about the Striga before in terms of mythology as one of the early conceptions of vampire like creatures in mythology. So that's a pretty obvious naming. Yeah, I was device. like, I was like, don't recognize any of it. Striga, recognize it. Recognize Striga. <laughs> um, and then Morana is the Slavic goddess of winter and death. So I just thought it was cool that they took some really obvious, like gothic and thematic roots in naming the the vampire. They sisters. did their research. <laughs> yeah. Um, also interesting, they have four vampires. So they have Camilla, and then they have Lenore, Striga, and Morana. Um, obviously they're not like vampire wives, which is, but that's really a really common trope in vampire things that, um, Bram Stoker gave Dracula three vampire wives. 
Um, so I just thought it was interesting that there's four instead of the usual three. Mm. The Van Helsing, they did three vampire wives, didn't they? Well, because Dracula has three vampire wives. Makes Morgan. sense. <laughs> I, kn- I didn't know that. I'm like, oh, that makes sense now. Yeah. Um, I just thought he was a player. Although in this case, I guess, like, Camilla is Dracula and her sister's are the three vampire wives. I guess that's how that's working, like, in terms of the power structure. Yeah. Weird. Um, our other main villain, and Morgan, you haven't watched the final season, so you won't know about this, but no. it's Death. An eternal entity also known as the Grim Reaper, Death seeks to bring Dracula back from the dead. He tricks St. Germain in doing so by disguising him as Varney the Vampire and the Alchemist. They actually use Varney from London. like They use that story as a character. That's cool. It is cool. I don't understand how it works with their plot. but Oh, yeah. No, it's crazy. <laughs> um According to Trevor Belmont, death is an elemental spirit who feeds on living beings' essences, also called life energy, at the exact moment after death. Like some depictions of vampires, but also dom- zombies, he er- his only desire is to eat. So that's why he wants to bring Dracula back to, like, just, like, kill all the humans, get lots of food, big feast for death. Yum, yeah. yum. Yum, yum. Um, other characters of interest slash importance are Lisa, who is Dracula's wife, um, but we've sort of covered the amount the important stuff of her character, which is that she dies, she's Dracula's wife, and she's also a doctor. <laughs> Three pillars of her character. <laughs> yeah, she's Dracula's wife, much. doctor, dies. Duh. Yeah, she's not in it very much. Um, and then there's Hector and Isaac, who are two characters that I quite like, but like they don't. Their plot points are not significant enough in general to say more about them, other than that they're forge masters, which means they can bring souls back from the hell, I guess, and put them into monster bodies which is cool, but also, like, there's not much else to say about it. <laughs> it's just, that's their job. Yeah. It's their nine to five. <laughs> um, and they're both, you know, angsty in their own sort of ways, and they all they both don't really like humans for their own reasons, and, like, that's it. Is Hector the one that partners up with Camilla first? Yeah, okay. The one with grey hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, his, his storyline in the final season is a bit, I don't like his ending, and maybe quite annoyed. Um <laughs> I'm willing to let it go because I liked so many other parts. Of yeah, that's like they 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 stuck the landing on everything else, so you you forgive them the one. Yeah. <laughs> um. So Camilla is clearly inspired by the vampire novel of the same name because they're just like I said, they're just pulling all the threads. And that's the thing is, like, in. I remember watching it and being like, oh, there's just like everything about this is like they're just taking things I'm familiar. Like, I know Camilla's a vampire thing. Like they just yeah. took it and they were like put it all into their own spin and world, yeah. which is very cool. It is cool. Um, so Camilla the novel was written and published in 1872 by Irish author Jos- Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, which is set in Styria, which he's the queen of in Castlevania. So it all, it all comes around. <laughs> um, the no- novella mixes authentic Middle and Eastern European folklore and Gothic literature. It formed the f- last story of a collection of five, um, last story of five in a collection in a glass darkly, but has um, often since been published separately. Its heroine and narrator is Laura, an English girl who lives with her father and a few servants in a secluded Austrian schloss. Do you know how I know how to say schloss? Because it's in the show? No. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's um, in my dad wrote a porno a lot because they, ah. they, they go to a lot of schlosses for some reason. <laughs> Laura is suffering deeply from loneliness when a strange in- incident results in a mystery girl, the beautiful Camilla, becoming a guest at the schloss. In Camilla, Laura finally finds the friend she's been looking for, but is puzzled by Camilla's odd habits and her unwillingness to reveal her true identity. 
Soon, an unknown disease that only kills young women strikes the countryside, and Laura herself eventually falls ill as well, when by chance a friend of the family shows up with a tale that leads to a horrifying revelation that Camilla's a vampire. Or, as the subtext reads, that they're gay. (laughs) It's a lesbian story. Subtext. (laughs) Um... How do we make them gay without saying gay? Vampires. Vampires. <laughs> uh, a disease that only kills young women. <laughs> All the women are gay. <laughs> Camilla. Yeah. Um, it's an, yeah. Interesting. Interesting time. Lots of I don't, homoerotic subject text is um, very pivotal in vampire literature. So that's just interesting that like a lot of people who are writing about vampires are like, I don't know what it is, but it's just it's yeah it's there's something like carnal and like pleasure like it's always like even like the drinking of bloods very like well, erotic. It's, it's about like yeah erotic taboos, but also like um, it's also about like often they're about like relationships and yeah the fact that you can't be with someone like because they're a vampire is also like saying like well I you know I in the time that these are written you being. Um, homosexual is often yeah. a crime and you get in prison for it. Um, and especially I, I was reading, I think, about Bram Stoker. Like he, when he was writing, I think when he was writing Dracula, Os- the scandal with Oscar Wilde being imprisoned for homosexuality was still a thing and yeah. he would have known about that. Um, and like, I and there's like speculation that he was also homosexual. So like, And I think like there's also like some, and this is probably, yeah, the church is doing, but like there is links between like vampires and Satan and Lucifer yes. and stuff. So they're probably like, if you lump it all in together, like, yeah, something the church would do for sure. Yeah. And be like, uh, that's like, like, vampires are gay. Vampires also linked with Satan. Evil. Hellfire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, um, re- writing vampire literature is a way of, I suppose, expressing those feelings that you can't publicly allow yourself to have. And that's why the vampire, the vampire becomes like a figure that you can't acknowledge because that then leads to your downfall. Um, yeah. That's how we get Twilight. Wow, that's how <laughs> Twilight is interesting because unlike, <laughs> unlike the um, you know the homoerotic roots of normal vampire literature and like the and I suppose the the Christian flex. I mean, I suppose Twilight is still Christian, but it is still it is more so aggressively Mormon, which means that it's very. I I think it's very different. I mean, vampires did take multiple wives. <laughs> it's very <laughs> different from like the roots of vampire literature in that way because it's aggressively pushing Mormon values, which is not not in normal vampire literature. Um, so back to Camilla. Um, the novel was possibly inspired by Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem Christabel. Um, so scholars have noticed the similarities between Christabel and Laura and also those between Coleridge's mysterious Geraldine and Lefanu's Camilla. So, like, there was always an interest in, like, this sort of gothic you know, your lover is undead, possibly. <laughs> um, and it just keeps going back in time um, until you get to stories that weren't even written down. They were just folk, t- folk tales. Um, I don't know if you met him, Morgan, because I don't know how much of the show you've actually watched, but uh, Bill Nye plays the Comte de Saint-Germain in um, the show. Rings a bell. And he becomes something of an interesting character in the third and fourth seasons. But the Comte de Saint-Germain was actually a real person. Um, so he was an 18th century adventurer with what seems like con man tendencies to me, <laughs> um, which the animation on that level nailed it. 
<laughs> they got it right. I love the idea, like, when you look back at history, it's like they were a traveling adventurer. It's like, oh, they were a con man. <laughs> like, it's like. The, the, the time has changed so much. It's like, yeah, they just went around and conned people. <laughs> yeah. Um, of his real name or parentage and place of birth, nothing is definitely known. Um, he, is, he was said to be a very accomplished man with an interest in science, alchemy, and the arts. He achieved prominence in European high society um, in the mid-1700s. He knew nearly all the European languages. That seems like a bit of a humble brag and also probably not true. Um, he was a musical composer and a capable violinist. His knowledge of history was co- comprehensive. He, he said he had a secret for removing the flaws from diamonds and for transmuting metals. And it was on this that he based his reputation. Is he Nicholas Flamel? <laughs> I mean, maybe. They don't know for sure that Nicholas Flamel actually died. Or, or do they? Um, he could be. But yeah, that's why they said he has an interest in alchemy, which means he's a con man lying about what he can do with diamonds. Um, Saint-Germain was, is said to have used a variety of names and titles, um, which is apparently an accepted practice among royalty and nobility at the time, but it also just says con man. Yeah. Um, these include the Marquis de Montferrat, Comte Bellamar, Chevalier Schoening, Count Weldon, Comte Solikoff, Soltikoff. (laughs) Count Soltikoff. Nice to meet you. It is actually Soltikoff. Graf Sorogi. And Prince Rakosny. Uh, the Russian ones, um, I'm sorry. I, they're going to be <laughs> real bad. Um, towards the end of his life, he claimed that he was the son of Prince Francis II of Transylvania. Don't know why. In order to f- deflect inquiries as to his origins, he would make far-fetched claims such as being 500 years old, leading Voltaire to sarcastically dub him the Wonder Man and that he is a man who does not die and who knows everything. <laughs> I mean, he could be Nicholas Flamel. <laughs> who knows? Um, according to legends which um, abound about him, there's, so, there's lots of really weird claims about him. Um, he was alive in the time of Jesus and attended the wedding at Cana where the young Jesus turned water into wine. He was also said to be present at the Council of Nicaea in, 30, in 325 AD. And has appeared in many times throughout history, even as recently as the, as the 1970s, always appearing to be about 45 years old. <laughs> Sounds like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. Um, or he has discovered the elixir of youth through alchemy and didn't share it with anyone. Maybe Jesus was a vampire. <laughs> he turned Jesus. <laughs> um, so I just think it's really interesting that like, when they were choosing characters, I don't know how, did they troll through the annals of history to find the Comte de Saint-Germain or did they already know about him? But he's so, he's such a good character. I just also just love like, in. like what you've described. And I'm like, I'd love, I'd, uh, Bill Nye, perfect. Yeah, Bill Nye <laughs> voices him. He does, and he does a great job. <laughs> he's perfect. Um, but also, con man. So obviously a con uh, man. 100%. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a bit about vampire history. So we've already talked about the rules of vampirism and we've talked a bit about Dracula. We're going to talk about like the evolution of how we get to this point in our cultural history where we just know what vampires are and we know what Dracula is and we know what they should look like. We know that they have fangs. We know that they sometimes have greasy slick back hair with a widow's peak. It's usually black and they sometimes wear capes with a red velvet underlay. 
often wearing capes and they're swanning around in their mansions um, looking for travellers to come in on a rainy night and drink their blood. <laughs> we know that. And how do we know that? So vampire superstition um, has basically always been around, but it thrived particularly in the Middle Ages, especially as the plague decimated entire towns. The disease often left behind bleeding mouth lesions on its victims, which um, some people took as a sure sign of vampirism because obviously medical um, practice had not evolved to the point where we were like, oh, that's just a mouth lesion, don't worry about it. Um, It wasn't uncommon... (laughs) I can just that's a mouth lesion. Don't worry about it. Whereas I feel like there's one, that's a mouth lesion. Worry about it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it depends on what the mouth lesion is a symptom of. If it's true, plague, true. you're probably already dead. <laughs> that's fair. It wasn't uncommon for anyone with um, an unfamiliar physical or emotional in- illness to be labeled a vampire. Many researchers have pointed to porophyria, which is a blood disorder that can cause severe blisters on the skin that's exposed to sunlight. Um, and as a disease that may have been linked to vampire legend and that's how you get the can't go out in sunlight, even though they can, they can go out in sunlight. They just can't use their powers. Um, some symptoms of uh, porifaria can be temporarily relieved by ingesting blood. Other diseases blamed for promoting the vampire myth include rabies or goiter. When a suspected vampire died, their bodies were often disinterred to search for signs of vampirism. In some cases, a stake was thrust through the corpse heart to make sure they stayed dead. Other accounts describe the decapitation and burning of corpses suspected to be vampires well into the 19th century. Um, in the late 1800s, Mercy Brown, a real human woman, died and was thought to have become a vampire due to local superstitions. Um, so she lived in Exeter, Rhode Island, and was the daughter of George Brown, a farmer. After George lost many family, family members, including Mercy, to tuberculosis, um, tuberculosis also probably has something to do with like why we think of vampires as pale, but like they get like a rosy flush because that's a very tuberculosis look. Mm. Um, and obviously tuberculosis at some point in time became tuberculosis chic. Everyone wanted to look like they had tuber- tuberculosis. So like that probably um, contributed to some of our ideas about what vampires also look like in terms of pallor. Um, so... His community then used Mercy as a scapegoat to explain why his entire family died of tuberculosis, a very common disease. Um, It was common at that time to blame several deaths in one family on the undead. The bodies of each dead family member were often exhumed and searched for signs of vampirism. When Mercy's body was exhumed and didn't display severe decay, which apparently is not surprising since her body was placed in an above-ground vault during a New New England winter. Fair enough. It's very cold. Her body's not going to decay as fast as if it's... Yeah. (laughs) Put your body in the fridge. Right. If if it's not going to decay as fast as if she's, like, underground with the wormies or it's stinking hot, you know? It's just... (laughs) Anyway. We're we're looking back on it with a lot of medical knowledge at our backs that they possibly just didn't have. (laughs) It's a fridge. Don't worry about it. It's a fridge. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Put her out in summer. You'll see what happens. (laughs) The townspeople accused her of being a vampire and making her family sick from her icy grave. They cut out her heart, burned it, then fed the ashes to her sick brother. Perhaps not surprisingly, (laughs) he died shortly afterwards. I was going to say, but it's not too, it's like, it's not like they're condemning someone who was alive. It's like, she's already dead. Whatever makes you feel better, no, guys. I but think, then they fed it to the brother. It's like, all right, uh, you're yeah, taking I, it a bit far I now. think they wanted to make him better, not realizing that feeding ashes 
of someone who's dead to someone who's already sick is probably yeah. a bad idea. Yeah, and then they were like, oh, they, they would have justified it be like, oh, it was a, a vampire. People can't eat vampires. <laughs> <laughs> you can't eat that. And it's that. like, yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. As long as you learnt that, <laughs> as long as you not learnt not to burn people and feed it to people, I guess we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, well, that didn't work. And they'll be like, well, let's try it one more time just in case. <laughs> and after that, we'll stop doing it. Uh, one of the first vampire written down publications is John Polidori's The Vampire. And you might know a bit of this story, Morgan. I don't know how much you know about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Uh, I know but a little bit. in June 1816, while John Polidori, Mary and Percy Shelley and Claire Claremont were visiting the house of Lord Vi- um, vi- visiting a house that Lord Byron Byron had rented near Geneva, Byron suggested that each member of the party should write a ghost story. Both Frankenstein and the vampire were initiated as a result of this t- of this challenge. Polidori was invited because he was Byron's physician at the time. And then he spawned a very popular vampire novel, sort of. Um, as part of the challenge, Byron wrote a fragment of a story which Polidori stated was the idea for his own tale. Polidori developed the idea and seems to have written it down for the Countess of Bruce, who lived nearby and for whom, from whom the publisher acquired the manuscript. It was first published in April 1819 in Henry Colboyne's new monthly magazine under the title The Vampire, A Tale by Lord Byron, later appearing as a book with Byron's name on the title page of the first edition. His name was removed for the second edition um, and he disclaimed authorship but the work's immediate success rested largely on the fact that it was originally attributed to him even though Polidori was the one who wrote it. The story concerns two newcomers arriving on the social scene of London's noble classes because of course it does. Lord Ruthven, frightening, frighteningly pale um, with a self-absor- self-absorbed uninterested attitude yet everyone he meets is attracted to him and seeks to win his affection and Aubrey, a handsome, wealthy orphan who uses his wild imagination more than his judgment. Aubrey becomes fascinated with Ruthven and obtains approval to accompany the Lord on his travels through Europe. When they tour in Rome, Lord Ruthven gambles and gives his money to impoverished people with vices rather than virtuous people in need. He also tries to seduce a young, innocent woman, though Aubrey tries to stop him. Appalled, Aubrey leaves Ruthven and travels to Athens where he meets Ianth, a beautiful Greek girl. He falls in love with her and she tells him supernatural tales, including the legend of the vampire. Aubrey leaves Ianth and she is killed as he returns. Caught in a storm in the woods said to be haunted by vampires, Aubrey finds her body bloody and with bite marks. Ruthven and Aubrey then go on another trip to forget the fact that Ianth died, where Ruthven is mortally wounded in an attack by robbers and demands that Aubrey make an oath with him that he will not mention his death for a year and a day, which is a very popular um, folkloric tale device where a year and a day is a very common time period for like bargains with the fae or vampires (laughs) when Aubrey returns to London he meets the surprisingly healed Ruthven he's alive um, who starts seducing Aubrey's sister Aubrey tries to warn his sister and their guardians but everyone dismisses him as crazy and Aubrey can't reveal anything because he made an oath to Ruthven to not reveal his death for a year and a day um Ruthven and Aubrey's sister marry the night before the oath expires. Aubrey's condition worsens and he dies. Aubrey's sister is also found dead, the presumed victim of a vampire. Um, And Lord Ruthven in this case is very much based on Lord Byron. (laughs) Um, Has to do a lot with seducing people. Um, But yes, that's one of the very first 
tales written down publications of like sort of gothic vampire literature that then becomes the craze um so that's just a fun little fact. So we've talked about Camilla. We've talked about the vampire. We've talked about Varney the vampire. Those are the three, one of the, like I would say the three earliest examples of vampire literature that we have. Um, but we haven't talked about Dracula. We haven't talked about, well, actually we're not talking about Dracula just yet. But we're <laughs> going to talk about Vlad. Vlad, Vlad the, the Impaler. Um, so a popular theory among scholars is that the character of Count Dracula is based on the infamously barbaric Vlad the Third better known as Vlad the Impaler. Prince of Wallachia. Oh, yes. He was born in Transylvania in the 15th century and was known popularly as Dracula, meaning son of Dracul. Um, this name was de- derived from the Latin Draco, meaning dragon, which is... Um, so he has this name. So basically, he has... We'll get there. Instead, we'll start, <laughs> we'll start here instead. In modern Romania, Drac has evolved to mean devil, but it originally meant dragon. Stoker is thought to have picked the name Dracula after reading a book that revealed to him this modern translation. His notes include the annotation, in Wallachian language, means devil, written in response to Drac. However, the name is not all that Dracula and Vlad III have in common. Uh, If you're wondering why he's called Vlad Vlad the Impaler and you don't know, he impaled his enemies on spikes to consolidate his political power in Wallachia. An unconfirmed account also claimed that while his victims were dying atop the stakes, Vlad would dip bread in their blood and eat it in front of him. But that is an unconfirmed account and likely untrue, but very good story. <laughs> um, and now we'll get to why Dracul is not like... It, me- it, it supposedly means devil in modern Romanian, but like the reason he's called Dracula is not that interesting. It was something gonna... to do with like the Turks, right? Like there was a group of nah. knights or something? Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, you said the Turks, and I was like, no. And then you're no. like, knights, and I was like, yes. Okay. Um, yes, that is true. But um, it's, yeah, it has to do with his dad as well. So Vlad was the second of four brothers born into the noble family of Vlad II Dracul. His um, name, Dracula, meant son of Dracul, which comes from his father's induction into the Order of the Dragon created by the Holy Roman Emperor, Holy Ro- Roman Emperor Sig- Sigismund, for defense of Christian Europe against the Ottoman Empire. So, yes, it has to do with Turks and it has to do with knights. It basically just means that he gets it because his dad is part of this, <laughs> this order, order of, of knights. The dragon. <laughs> so his dad is Vlad Dragon and he is Vlad, son of dragon. <laughs> just titles, you know. <laughs> oh, so fun. Um, so Vlad moved to Targoviste, Wallachia, in 1436 when his father assumed leadership of the um, Wallachian Vivote, Vivote, Principality. Yeah, Principality. In 442, Vlad and his younger brother were sent to the court of Ottoman Sultan Murad II as collateral to ensure the Sultan that their to assure the Sultan that their father, in the reversal of his previous position, would some support Ottoman policies. Because again, remember, Wallachia doesn't like the Turks. They continued to resist them for a very long time. Um, Vlad returned in 1448, having been informed of the insa- assassination of his father and elder brother at the hands of the Wallachian boyars, or nobles, the year before. Vlad then embarked on the first of a lifelong series of campaigns to regain his father's seat. His opponents included the boyars, as well as his younger brother, who was supported by the Ottoman sultan. He emerged briefly victorious in 1448, but was deposed after only two months. After an eight-year struggle, Vlad again claimed the voivote, it was during his pe- this period of rule that he committed the atrocities for which he was best known. His pen- his penchant 
for impaling his enemies on stakes on the ground, which is not, I would not call it a penchant. I would say his habit or his um, torturous habit. Um, his toxic trend. His, <laughs> his toxic trend <laughs> um, of impaling his enemies on stakes in the ground and leaving them to die earned him, earned him his name, Vlad the Impaler, or in Romanian, Vlad Tepes, which is how you get Drac- Vlad Dracula Tepes in Castlevania, um, or Adrian Tepes, which is... Adrian, somehow name. Adrian the Impaler. And I mean, Adrian only does it, Lila Carter only does it once in Castlevania. I'm Adrian the Impaler. <laughs> just doesn't have the same ring to it. But Tepesh is, is a cool cool name. Yeah, it is. Um, he inflicted this type of torture on foreign and domestic enemies alike. Notably, as he retreated from battle in 1462, he left a field, field filled with thousands of impaled victims as a deterrent to pursuing Ottoman forces. That year, he escaped Ottoman capture, only to be in- intercepted by Hungarian forces and imprisoned by Matthias I of Hungary, whose assistance he had sought. Vlad regained his seat in 1476, but was killed in battle the same year. He remained a folk hero in the region for his ep- efforts against the Ottoman encroachment, which is why we still know his name. Yeah, because yeah, he never really held power for long. He kept losing it, and yeah. trying to get it back. It was more his exploits in battle, I think. Yeah, that- <laughs> his um, toxic trend. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it was against the Turks, so local people were like, yeah, <laughs> Vlad He's Tepesh, a local, local hero. Impaler. Impale those Turks. <laughs> Homegrown hero. Uh, yeah. Um, they were probably like, as long as he's not doing it to us, he <laughs> But having talked about Vlad, we'll now talk about Dracula. Um, Dragulia. As, <laughs> I was trying to do like a... What I remember them pronouncing it as in like Francis Ford Coppola's m- movie Dracula, but like don't I just remember, right. um, and this is like a lot of my quotes is like I say a lot from Van Helsing for some reason, but yeah. I remember um, Richard Rockbrothers, but he's like Count Dragulia. He just says it very funny. He's great. I think I I had like a impression from Van Helsing that I wanted to do, but I I always my favorite thing. I always say it a lot. I always say from Van Helsing, too bad, so sad. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's just like no one gets it, but no. it's okay. It's great. <laughs> so Count Dracula is obviously the title character of Dracula. Um, he is considered to be both the prototypical and the archetypal vampire in subsequent works of fiction. He's also depicted in the novel to have been the origin of the werewolf legend, although werewolves or creatures obviously exist in folklore. Um, but Bram Stoker's just doing his own thing. He just thing. tied it in, yeah. made them linked yeah. intrinsically. Some aspects of the character are believed to be inspired by Vlad the Impaler, but also people will go to war on that with you. They will they, There's hills that they will die on. Um, and also by Sen- Sir Henry Irving, an actor for whom Stoker was a personal assistant, which are two very, they seem like two very different people to join together. But anyway. So Dracula is an undead centuries-old vampire and Transylvanian nobleman who claims to be descended from Attila the Hun. He inhabits a decaying castle in the Carpathian Mountains near the Borgo Pass. Unlike the vampires of Eastern European folklore, which are portrayed as repulsive corpse-like creatures, um, and if you want to sort of see ones who look like that, um, Nosferatu is a good place to go, but I don't... They're not... They're certainly not Gary Oldman. (laughs) They're not. Um, Dracula is handsome and charismatic and with with a veneer of aristocratic charm. 
um, despite the fact that how he looks at the start of Francis Ford Coppola's movie and at the start of the book of Dracula, um, he's still very charming. In his conversations with Jonathan Harker, he reveals himself as deeply proud of his boyar heritage and nostalgic for the past, which he admits has only become a memory of heroism, honour and valour in, ma- in modern times. Details of his early life are undisclosed in the book, but it is mentioned that he was in life a most wonderful man, soldier, statesman and alchemist, which um, the latter was the highest development of scientific knowledge of the time. He had a mighty brain, a learning beyond compare and a heart that knew no fear and no remorse. There was no branch of knowledge of his time that he did not essay. Um, It's interesting that that's sort of what Stoker says because that's very much the Dracula that Castlevania uses um, with when Dracula has Lisa. That's the man that he is. He is the wonderful man, the alchemist, um, the statesman, the one who's pursuing scientific knowledge. Um, and then, obviously, when Lisa's gone, he becomes the monster. Do I remember correctly? Does he have a moving castle? Yeah. Like it transports and stuff? Yeah. Yep. I mean, it doesn't move like Hal's moving castle. <laughs> no. but it's like it does like... Um, Moves between like planes of existence yeah, or something? Dimensions, yeah, dimensions, Dimensions, yeah. Um, according to his nemesis, Abraham Van Helsing, um, Dracula must have indeed been that voivode Dracula who won his name against the Turk over the Great River on the very frontier of Turkeyland. If it be so, then he was no common man, for in that time and for centuries after, he was spoken of as the cleverest and most cunning, as well as the bravest of the sons of the land beyond the forest. Dead and buried in a great tomb in the chapel of his castle, Dracula returns from death as a vampire and lives for several centuries in his castle with three terrifyingly beautiful female vampires beside him, his vampiric wives. Um, his appearance varies in age. He is described early in the novel as thin with a long white moustache pointed ears and sharp teeth. It is also noted later in the novel, um, specifically chapter 11, subsection, subsection The Escaped Wolf. Um, a lot of this work was done by someone else and I just took it because I couldn't be bothered excavating my copy of Dracula, but <laughs> someone's already done this. So like, well done them. <laughs> Good on him. Um, by a zookeeper who sees him that he has a hooked nose and a pointed beard with a streak of white in it. He is dressed all in black and has hair on his palms. Harker describes him as an old man, cruel-looking, and giving an effect of, ex- of extraordinary pallor. As the novel progresses, Dracula is described as taking on a more beautiful, on a more and more youthful appearance, but also a more handsome one. After Harker strikes him with the shovel, he is left with a scar on his forehead, which he bears throughout the course of the novel. Although early in the novel, Dracula dons a mask of cordiality, he often flies into fits of rage when his plans are frustrated, something that I think Castlevania also uses. Like, he seems very... Um, he has that aristocratic charm and he seems very um, put together on the outside, but he's also crazy. <laughs> he flies into mad rages where he, you know, looks scary. When Dracula's brides attempt to seduce Jonathan Harker, Dracula physically assaults one of them and, ferocio- um, and ferociously berates them for their insubordination. Um, I think it's just interesting that in terms of, like, the design of the character of Dracula in Castlevania... He looks very, very similar to how Gary Oldman looks in Francis, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Like he has that, he has the long wavy brown hair um, and the mustache and, yeah. and the, the, the goatee. Like they just look, it's a very similar character design. So I have to think it's intentional that they referenced that specific look for Dracula. Yeah. 
because it's 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 almost one for one except for the fact that like I would say that Castlevania Dracula looks a little bit better than Gary Oldman, <laughs> although. Uh, Dracula is much less powerful in daylight and is over, only able to shift his form at dawn, noon, and dusk. Um, but he can shift his form freely at night or if he's in his grave. The sun is not fatal to him as sunlight does not burn and destroy him upon con- contact, though most of his abilities cease. Um, and what it says in the book is, The sun that rose on our sorrow this morning guards us in its course. Until it sets tonight, that monster must retain whatever form he now has. He is confined within the limitations of his earthly envelope. He cannot melt into thin air, nor disappear through cracks or chinks or crannies. If he go through a doorway, he must open open the door like a mortal. And isn't that just? Can you imagine the indignity of being <laughs> of being this immortal, powerful creature? But when the sun's up, you have to go through a door and open it with a hand like a normal person. <laughs> um, I just love that. Um, and we've already gone over the powers that Stoker gives to vampires in his novel, but we haven't really talked about how vampires transmit the curse of vampirism. Um, So one of Dracula's powers is the ability, obviously, to turn others into vampires by biting them. Um, According to Van Helsing, when they become such, there comes with the change the curse of immortality. They cannot die but must go on age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. For all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on their kind. And so the circle goes on, ever widening, like as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. Friend Arthur, if you had met that kiss which you which you know of before poor Lucy die, or again last night when you opened your arms to her, you would be in time when you had died, have become Nosferatu, as they call it in Eastern Europe, and would for all time make more of those undeads that have so filled us with horror." Um, so the vampire bite itself does not cause death. It is the method that vampires obviously use to drain blood of the victim and to increase their influence. Um, but it doesn't actually kill them. You don't become undead from a vampire bite until you die. Um, so this is described by Van Helsing. The Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting once. He is only stronger and being stronger have yet more power to work evil. Once you're bitten by a vampire, you are hypnotically influenced by them. Um, so, again, from the book, those children whose whose blood she suck are not yet, not yet so much worse. But if she live on undead, more and more lose their blood, and by her power over them, they come to her. Um, so that was talking about Lucy Westernro when she becomes a vampire. Um, and then Van Helsing also describes the aftermath of a bitten bitten victim where the vampire has been killed. So, but if she die in truth, then all cease. The tiny wounds at the of the throat disappear and they go back to their plays unknowing whatever has been. So if you kill a vampire and you haven't died um, and you're still good, then the wounds disappear and you just go back to life the way it was. As Dracula slowly drains Lucy blood, Lucy's blood, she dies, dies from acute blood loss um, and then transforms into a vampire when she's dead, despite the effects of um, Seward and Van Helsing to provide her with blood transfusion. Transfusions. So, like, it's not the um, with Lucy, unlike with Mina, it was very much just a, like he drained her of her blood to get more powerful, and then she died, and then she became a vampire, and they killed her. Whereas with Mina, there's a bit more. Um, there's a there's a whole like ritual to it that he does, which is slightly different from the normal. Just like you, you drink their blood, they die, they become undead, yeah. unless the vampire that drained their blood is also dead, in which case they remain. 
um, Dracula is also we'll, – we'll get into the sort of vampire right, but first I'll just say that um, Dracula is also aided by the powers of necromancy and divination of the dead, that all who die by his uh, by his hand may reanimate, which we've already discussed, but also that they will do his bidding. They become his slaves, his servants, <laughs> um, which seems like a big – I mean, in the book, Dracula doesn't really kill that many people, only Lucy um, – and she reanimates, but like it seems like if you were doing that a lot, that's just a lot of like people to manage. Like, yeah, you would just have a very big household, and that would be a yeah, lot. It's just it's a lot of it's a lot of work, a lot of admin. Yeah, um, a lot of babies to procure for hungry vampire wives. The vampire right that Dracula does with Mina is um, basically to punish Mina and the party for their efforts against him. Dracula bites her on at least three occasions. And then he also forces her to drink his own blood. And this act curses her with the effects of vampirism and gives him a telepathic link to her thoughts. So it, it's a compounding of like other powers as well as like what normally happens when you try and turn someone into a vampire. The effects change Mina physically and mentally over time. A few moments after Dracula attacks her, Van Helsing takes a wafer of sacramental bread and places it on her forehead to bless her. When the bread touches her skin, it burns her and leaves a scar on her forehead. Her teeth start growing longer but do not grow sharper. She begins to lose her appetite, feeling repulsed, repulsed by normal food, begins to sleep more and more during the day, cannot wake unless at sunset, and stops writing in her diary. When Van Helsing later crumbles the same bread in a circle around her, she is unable to cross or leave the circle. Dracula's death can release the curse on any living victim of eventual transformation into a vampire. However, Van Helsing reveals that were he to su successfully escape, his continued existence would ensure that even if he did not victimise Mina further by drinking from her blood and having her drink his, she would transform into a vampire upon her, nat her natural death anyway because that's how the normal curse of vampirism transmits. But he's just doing some extra stuff with Mina <laughs> as punishment. She's special. So that's, how, so that's sort of like how Drac all the important stuff about Dracula in um, the book which names his origins as a character that it has, as it now exists in popular culture forever. Um, we're also going to talk about Van Helsing, Dracula's nemesis, um, and who in Castlevania the role is played by the Belmont family, specifically Trevor, but yeah. his whole family is the been Belmont family is the, the nemesis <laughs> to vampires, <laughs> the hunters. Yeah. So, except we're going to find out, but Van Helsing is not a vampire hunter. So, Professor Abraham Van Helsing. Oh. Did you know that um, Abraham is named Abraham Van Helsing is named after Bram Stoker? Bram is short for Abraham. Oh, that makes sense. I never thought about that. Yeah. Bram, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a fun fact. Um, so, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, a fictional character, um, is an aged polymath Dutch doctor with a wide range of interests and accomplishments. You'd have to be to become to hunt down Dracula. <laughs> You'd have to be interested in a lot of different things. Um, and that's all attested to by the string of letters that follow his name, like MD, PhD. He's got he's got them all. Doctor of letters, probably, um, indicating a wealth of experience, education, and expertise. The character is best known through many adaptions of the story as a vampire hunter and the arch enemy of Count Dracula, and the prototypical and archety archetypical archetypal there we go, um, parapsychologist in subsequent works of paranormal fiction. Um, parapsychology is the study of alleged psychic phenomena and alleged paranormal experiences. It sounds really um, sciencey, but it's not. 
Um, in the novel, Professor Van Helsing is called in by his former student, Don John Seward, to assist with the mysterious illness of Lucy Westenra. Van Helsing's friendship with Seward is, part, is based in part upon a prior event in which Van Helsing suffered a grievous wound and Seward saved his life by sucking out the gangrene, which is not... Gross. You can't do that. Also, <laughs> it's gangrene. That's not how gangrene works, Gross. I'm pretty sure. Um, it is Van Helsing who first realises that Lucy is the victim of a vampire and he guides Seward and his friends in their efforts to save Lucy. Van Helsing's personality is described by John Seward, his former student, as thus... He is a seemingly arbitrary man. This is because he knows what he is talking about better than anyone else. He is a philosopher and a metaphysician, one of the most advanced scientists of his day, and he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. Well, you'd have to, wouldn't you, if you're going to go vampire hunting? This with an iron nerve, a a temper of the ice brook, an indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration exalted from virtues to blessings, and the kindly, kind, kindliest and truest heart that beats, these form his equipment for the noble work that he is doing for mankind. Work both in theory and practice, for his views are as wide as all his as his all-embracing sympathy. So basically he's just like a all-up stand-up, he's very smart, and other than that, a stand-up guy. Adaptions of the novel have tended to play up Van Helsing's role as a vampire expert sometimes to the extent that it is depicted as his major occupation in the novel however dr seward requests van helsing's assistance simply because lucy's affliction has him baffled and van helsing knows as much about obscure diseases as anyone in the world because he's a doctor yep (laughs) uh dr vampire hunter the character of the vampire hunter and the surname Van Helsing then go in, go in, go on in popular culture, become immortalized in their own way, same as Dracula becomes immortalized. And it's the legacy of Van Helsing which then goes into the concept of a lineage of monster hunters whose sole purpose is to protect the world from monsters like the Belmont family in Castlevania. So you might have the family of Van Helsing in another popular fiction, as opposed to just like the idea of just having one character. You have, you have the whole family, and they all carry on this tradition. And that's interesting. So we haven't really talked much about, we've talked about vampires. Mm-hmm, we haven't really mm-hmm. talked much about Alucard's situation in that he is half vampire, half human. But we will now. So I don't know if you've heard the word dampier before, Morgan, but yeah, that's what he off. is. Uh, so a dampier, a dampier is from Balkan folklore, and, and it's, it's obviously the child of a vampire father. And, and a doctor mother. <laughs> specifically a doctor. Has to be a doctor. Uh, just a human mother. Um, in recent vampire fiction, Dampier refers to any hybrid of one human and one vampire parent, but specifically in the folklore, it was a male vampire and a female. I, I suppose they just didn't have that many female vampires in their version of folklore. But anyway, in the Balkans, it is believed that male vampires have a great desire for women. Um, I would say that most vampire folklores agree with that, are also <laughs> fictions. They just, you know, that's why there's sexy vampires. Um, so a vampire will return to have intercourse with his wife or with a woman he was attracted to in life. Just as some cultures once, belie- once believed that murderers and suicides would rise as vampires, a child born approxim- approximately nine months after the death of the father might have been accused of being a dampier, which is not their fault. That's just bad timing. Yeah. <laughs> some traditions specify signs of, by which the children of vampire the children of a vampire can be recognised. Serbian legends state that they have untamed dark or black hair and lack a shadow. In Bulgarian folklore, possible indications include being very dirty, having a soft body, no nails, and bones. Um, 
So there are some folklores that believe that vampires don't have any bones. They're just wobbling all over the place. Wild. So that's where the that big comes old blag of blood. Yeah, just, just blood and skin. <laughs> Nothing to hold them up. They're just sliding across it's the no ground. It's a no bones day. <laughs> <laughs> and a deep, deep mark on the back, on the back like a tail. In contrast, a pronounced nose was often a sign as were, and like, I don't like, pronounced noses is a very racially specific, bad, what's the word, character, character, character that people use. Yep. So like, that's probably what that's back coming back to is something that's racially motivated, but um, as well as larger than normal ears, teeth or eyes. According to J. Gordon Melton from his book, The Vampire Book, The Encyclopedia of the Undead, in some areas, a true dampier possessed a slippery, slippery, jelly-like body and lived only a short life, a belief that vampires have no bones. Um, I just don't, I can't imagine what someone who has a slippery, jelly-like body looks like. <laughs> um, yeah, like a, like um, Mrs. Incredible when she's, no, is it Mrs. Incredible? Yeah, she's just all like Lucy. But like, have you ever seen anyone who actually looks like that? No. No. <laughs> Haven't met any. Legends state that dampiers were, for the most part, normal members of the community, but dampiers, especially male of the um, paternal vampire descent, could see invisible vampires and practice sorcery, often starting careers as vampire hunters, which would be practiced for generations from father to son. They may even eventually become vampires after death, with the process repeating itself for generations. So just an interesting thing that you get both the, the idea of like the vampire lineage going down and repeating, and each one, each one father to son, is a damp hit. But then after death, they also become full vampires. <laughs> like, it's a lot. Um, according to most stories, dampiers can have both the powers of a human and vampire. They can sense a supernatural creature within a specified distance, have acute sense of sight and hearing, have regenerative, regenerative abilities, immortal, immortality, can walk in sunlight, um, which has led to the idea of, like, that's often used in vampire vampire fiction of the day walker also eat like a human and they can control animals and can be used to destroy other vampires in modern fiction they may have all of the vampire vampires powers and none of their weaknesses or watered down versions of both half as strong but only uncomfortable in sunlight the word dampier is etymod if you haven't guessed is etymologically related to vampire etymologically etymologically related to vampire they both come from the Serbo-Croatian word for vampires, vampire. Well, vampire entered English through the German um, German descent of words. Dampier is from the Albanian um, descent of words, where it underwent a phonological shift, which is why it looks so different from the original. Originally, Albanians made no distinction between vampires and their mixed children. They were always both referred to as dampier. But modern pop culture has necessi- necessitated a need to distinguish them, so that way we can have more plots with people who are not va- with good vampires. So if they're good vampires, they can't be all vampires. So they're half <laughs> vampires. So we have dampiers. Um, still, there are some rural areas of Albania where dampier continues to be used to refer to vampires. Some Slavic languages, the word dampier is defined by this trope, defi- as defined by this trope, is not used at all. With terms like vampiric, vampirovic, which means vampire son, and vampiressa being used instead. So you have like vamp. You have normal vampire, um, and then you either have vampiric for children of vampire. You have vampirovic, vampire son, and vampiressa, which is vampire's daughter, as opposed to having dampier, which is a word that applies to any child of a vampire. 
Um, and then you also get weird stuff like Vampiressa being used for like a weird concept for children's cartoons. Have you seen that? No. <laughs> I feel like there's like a, on Netflix, there's like an animated show that's about like, that's like a spooky show for children and it's about a Vampiressa. Oh, sounds about right. They make a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of like spooky children's shows now. You know, in our time, we just had like Ruby Glue. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, we can't compete with Ruby Glue. And now they've got like Monster High and vampire children's shows and spooky Halloween stuff, which we did not get. Watch Ruby Glue. Um, so I've got a fun fact for you, Morgan. Oh, I love fun facts. Come to the end of end of what I have written down. Um, according to IMDb trivia and Van Helsing, our one of our childhood movies love that it. we really enjoy, right before. Oh, this is, yeah, okay. Right before Dracula says, I give you Van Helsing in front of the other vampires, you can hear the trumpets play the first musical phrase from the song Castle Dracula from Castlevania Symphony of Night. That's cool. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. That they use the music. I just thought it was like, that means they know, they knew about the game Castlevania and they incorporated the music into yeah. Van Helsing, which is a great trashy, trashy movie about vampires that I love. Yeah. I was just like, oh, everything's coming together. Um, also, I just, I just love Van. I love, yeah, I, I just love Richard Roxburgh. He's Dracula. so good. <laughs> it's so weird how many Australians are in that movie. Yeah, it's odd. It is odd. Because it's him, it's Hugh Jackman, and it's David Wenham, and you're yeah. like, what? It's like, why? But you know what? It works. So it does. Why not? Um, my only other thing to finish up this episode of the podcast before we get to recommendations is um, I just want to enter a plea into the world in the hope that in entering it into the world, it will become true. Um, let Richard Armitage say fuck more. <laughs> uh, casting as Trev- Trevor was a great choice. I, in fact, I would say they nailed the casting for basically everything in this show. But, oh, my God, letting Richard Armitage say, like, eat shit and die and fuck off and all the swears <laughs> and just having a terrible, filthy mouth is just a delight. <laughs> it's just so good. I can't, yeah, you can't picture him. He seems like such a lovely man. He and has then, such <laughs> a face that says, I'm lovely and charming and yeah. I've never said fuck in my life. And then you animate over it and it's like. And you give him like, yeah, you give him <laughs> Trevor's face and you're like, yeah, no, this works. <laughs> so I have a couple of recommendations. I mean, we've sort of gone through a bit um, already. But uh, Camilla, Varney, the Vampire and the Vampire by John Polidori are all avail- available on Project Gutenberg for free. So anyone can read them if they want. Um, it might not be your style because they are obviously older novels, but they're all there. So they're all available. Um, obviously, we would recommend Van Helsing as a movie to watch. <laughs> I wouldn't claim that it's good. I would never claim that, but I do love it. Definitely a guilty pleasure. Yeah, it's a, it's such a good trash movie. Um, and yeah, it's just, just some fun performances and you know, an interesting take on Dracula um, and his wives and what they can do and their powers and an interesting take on Van Helsing as, well, you know, you'll find out. Yeah, they tease something that they never really developed. Well, they ne- well they couldn't because because <laughs> the movie, like any any plans they had of doing anything else with it was dropped as soon as the movie came out and people said, this is bad. And I, w- I mean, they weren't wrong, but also they don't understand that sometimes bad is good. Yeah. Um. Your Dead to Me podcast has an episode on vampires in Gothic literature. If you just want to know more about the history of vampires in Gothic literature, um, Your Dead to Me is a history podcast that has um, the one of the writers from Horrible Histories, the host, and always invites a historian and a comedian. 
Um, and the historian tells the comedian whatever their topic is and the comedian makes it funny and it's, it's good. Um, I was going to say I think Dan Snow's History Hit podcast might have an episode on Vlad the Impaler because I've definitely listened to an episode on Vlad the Impaler and then I thought it might have been on your Dead to Me or one of my other two history podcasts, but when I had a look, I couldn't find it. <laughs> and then you've mentioned that you did an episode on it and now I think it might have been yours. Potentially. <laughs> um, but uh, Morgan has an episode of Vlad the Impaler and I know that for sure, which I don't know about my other history podcasts. So you can check that out if you want to know more about Vlad the Impaler. Season finale of Infamous Individuals. Check it out. Because <laughs> I was like, I definitely listened to something on Vlad the Impaler. I just can't remember where I listened to it. And I was like, it must have been, it was like, it must have been, you're dead to me. It wasn't. And I was like, it must have been History Hit. And History <laughs> Hit has 700 episodes. And I was like, I don't know. Um, I've got some recommendations this week. Um. What We Do in the Shadows is a New Zealand movie uh, by Jermaine Clement and Taka Watiti, but it has recently gone on to much successes with a TV, TV show. show. Season three is amazing. Yeah, they're doing season three right now. It's amazing. Check it out if you haven't. And uh, they, they're really good at, like, it's comedy, but they drop some deep lore just casually a lot of the time. Like, I think there was an episode about... Um, one of the characters home dirt recently, like his grave dirt yeah, and the stuff. Grave dirt. Uh, and it was just like, yeah, deep lore that they just throw in and it makes it comedy. Great. Um, and also a new one, Mike Flanagan's new show on, this is kind of like a spoiler by just even talking about it now, but I don't know how to recommend it. So it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, Mike Flanagan's new Netflix show called midnight mass. Oh yeah. Um, so good. I liked his other ones like haunting of Hill house and Bly Manor, but I don't know something about midnight mass. I was like, I was into it. It was very cool. Is like, it because you went to a Catholic school? Potentially it did. It did trigger my religious trauma. You went, uh, to, <laughs> you went to a Catholic primary and secondary school. Mm. But yeah, so that's, that's definitely worth checking out. Uh, if you're into like the whole vampire thing, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's whack. It's super whack about it, but I really like just the take of like, oh, it's an angel. <laughs> but yeah, no. Uh, that's definitely worth checking out. I think those are my two recommendations. Okay, great. Well, plenty of things for people to look at if they're interested. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Is that the? Is that everything you've that got? That is everything. Cool. Um, before we finish up today, just letting you all know, we're probably going to be taking a break probably for the rest of this year, I'd say. We're uh, very busy. Yeah, probably until end of Jan. Yeah. Um, and then when we do come back, we're probably going to mix up the, the format a little bit, maybe do a seasonal thing. But yeah, just uh, we'll be taking a break, and then when we come back, it'll probably be yeah a different yeah. format. Taking a know. break and rethinking how we do the show. Yeah, um, but yeah, we're not we're not going away for good. We're just taking a break, and we will be back uh, once we probably we need to probably get a big list of topics well, we, we want to do. Absolutely do. <laughs> but yeah, uh, until then, we'll uh, I guess we'll have we'll wish everyone a merry early yeah, Christmas me- and a happy early, New Year. very early merry <laughs> Christmas and very early happy New Year. Yeah, and uh, we'll be back uh, next year sometime with a whole heap of new stuff. But uh, until then, thank you, Finn, for doing all the research and joining me today thank you morgan for having me as yeah, always yep and, and uh thanks to our listeners if yeah. there are any yeah if you're if you're out there uh, let us know instagram facebook all that fun stuff spike a trap until next time we'll see you later this has been a spiky trap radio production for more spiky trap radio content please head to spikytrap.com.